crime. That's it, crime. That's what we're about to talk about. Hope you stay around for this edition of the Chuck Williams Show. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to this episode of the Chuck Williams Show. We've got a guest with us today. He's Columbus attorney David Rowetter. We'll, we'll talk a little legal stuff, but David has a unique role. He's a transplant into Columbus. He married into Columbus, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. But he is the chairman of the Public Safety Advisory Commission, and it's a commission that works with the police department to talk about the crime issues in Columbus. And I think 54 homicides into 2021, we would all agree we have a crime issue right now. David, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Um, first of all, just so people have a little idea of who who you are. Um, t- I mean, tell me a little bit. How old are you? Where were you raised? Just give me a little bit of the, the background of who David Rowetter is. 39 years old. I am originally from a little town in Iowa called Cedar Falls. And as of today, I've lived in eight different states. So I came south when I was 15 from Milwaukee, south of Milwaukee, moved to Hoover, Alabama. And that's how I got down south, and I haven't left. So at Hoover, did you go to high school in Hoover? I did. I graduated from Hoover High School. Oh, that's a football factory. It was, but I was way too small and had no business out on the field, so I didn't play. Was that before the the MTV series on Hoover, or was that you it graduated was. before the MTV series with Rush Probst and all that stuff? Um, okay, so you graduated from Hoover High. Where'd you do your undergraduate? I went to UAB, stuck around, got a degree in uh, philosophy, one in sociology. Then I went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania and got a master's degree in medical ethics or bioethics. And then moved home to Birmingham and went to law school at Cumberland School of Law at Samford University. So you've got three degrees in essence. You've got a master's in bioethics from from an Ivy League school from Penn, and then you went to Cumberland at Samford University for your law degree. Right. Um, that's an interesting education combination. <laughs> uh, what do you do with that? I mean, you're obviously practicing law now, but how? I mean, how do you kind of go from philosophy to biomeds to to law? I mean, it was an easy transition. So when I was an undergraduate studying philosophy, I got really deep into moral ethics, and I found myself with this question of how am I going to feed myself and my family if I continue on down this path? And naturally, at that point, the plan was to go get a PhD in philosophy. And then I, I think it was just pure luck that I met um, my, my mentor at the time, and he happened to be in the field of bioethics, and I got hooked. And it, it, was, it was love at first sight. So afterwards, I, I went and got a, my master's degree because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to pursue a PhD or go to law school. And my mentor, Greg Pence, who still teaches at UAB, said, you want to go try this, see if you can get into this program, you might like it. So, I mean, bioethics, you know, I guess it would relate today in the current COVID uh, situation as vaccines are being produced and thing. I mean, so bioethics is something that, you know, people are talking about today, right? Absolutely. Um, and you came out of that and then went back, came back to Birmingham. That's where you met your wife, yes. Chandler, right? Uh, so, as I said in the intro, you didn't find Columbus. Columbus, you married Columbus. Yeah, I had 
didn't know Columbus existed until I met my wife. And that was in law school. Y'all were both law school students, right? We were in the the same section our first year of law school, and it took months and months and months before she finally decided to to have a date with me. And it was it was love at first sight for me. Uh, and so, from somebody who didn't, you couldn't have figured out Columbus, Georgia to Columbus, Mississippi to Columbus, Ohio, right? It didn't. No way. I mean, so. What do you remember about Columbus the first time you came home with Chandler? It felt like home. Wow. Some, the small town feel of it. I mean, having lived in eight different states and having moved around at what I thought were pretty critical times in my early childhood and even into my teens, the one thing that I found when I first time I got here was that sense of home and that sense of belonging. You know, you could go out to a restaurant and find somebody that you know. There were opportunities in a smaller town to get involved that when you're in a much bigger city, those opportunities aren't there. You know, and I've got a very different perspective because I was raised in Eufaula. This is the big city to me, (laughs) and you're looking at it on the kind of flip side of that. I mean, this feels like a small town to you? Not anymore. Why do you say that? Because I've been here, and I realize that it's not a small town. It's very much a a city, and it's a vibrant city. So – when did you all, when did you and Chandler move back here and sort of what did you do when you I mean both of y'all came back to law degrees here the law practices here right right so we moved here maybe a month after we got done taking the bar exam in 2009 she went to work for Paige Scranum big firm downtown and I went to work with Jeff Brown and Clayton Adams doing defense work so we both got our start and def- really defense work is this a tough I mean is this a tough town for somebody who doesn't have the contacts that, you know, to, is this a tough town for you to come in and kind of say, hey, I want to practice here? Because young lawyer, there are a lot of guys coming out of law school that are coming back to Columbus where they were raised. Was that hard for you? No. I mean, it, it, if you put yourself out there and you do good work, you'll continue to have opportunities to practice and, and continue to have opportunities to get involved. And so my message to the younger lawyers is to do just that find ways to get involved in your community. It's going to open up uh, a different world for you. And now you're practicing with a firm that literally is across the parking lot from the WRBL <laughs> studios. Tell me, I can't pronounce the name of your firm, so I'm not <laughs> even going to try. You tell me the name of your firm and what kind of work you're doing now. The law firm's called Littner and Daganian, and we are personal injury lawyers. Littner and? Daganian. Daganian. Right. Littner and Naganian, and your personal injury lawyers. Are they based here or are they based out of other places? So we have the main offices in Atlanta, and okay. then we opened up uh, the Columbus office in January of 2020, right before COVID hit. So a lot of the court stuff has, hasn't has stopped per se, but it's certainly ground to a slower pace. <clears throat> has that impacted y'all's work? Not really. The, the – we, what we've had to do is find creative ways to push cases. You know, as a plaintiff's lawyer, I think one of your best friends is a trial date. Yeah. It's the fear of the unknown that I think for a lot of folks moves the needle. And without that threat hanging over everyone's head, we had to find different ways to to create some, some movement. And we were able to do that and I think successfully do that. Well, I mean, if you look on the criminal side, and I think Judge Ben Land, who's Superior Court judge here in town, has said it, and I've heard him say it many, many times, is, you know, a criminal case can sit there forever, and then all of a sudden, 
when that jury is downstairs waiting to be picked, you know, both the prosecution and the defense attorney become very motivated, and the defendant become motivated to figure something out, um, which results, I mean, I've seen several things in Judge Land's court that pleaded out literally with juries being picked as they were being picked. It's like, boom. So that threat of resolution creates resolution. Well, it's the threat of the unknown because what you're doing at that point is leaving your fate to the hands of 12 strangers. That's that's the unknown. You don't know what they're going to do. We can speculate all day long, but we don't know. Yeah, 12 strangers is an interesting... Do you want to control your fate or leave that up to somebody you don't know and And let them have a couple of days of a snapshot into whatever your experience is, whether it's a civil case, working on car racks or tractor-trailer racks or wrongful death cases, or it's a criminal case. They only get a very small window into what you've experienced over, at that point, would be years in litigation. So let's talk now... You're sitting here practicing law. When did you first hear of the Public Safety Advisory Commission, and how did you end up on it? Tell me, and I tell you, first of all, explain the Public Safety Advisory Commission for people who don't understand it. All right, so the Public Safety Advisory Commission was formed in 2004, and we have 11 members. And so the way that the membership is made up, every city councilor gets to appoint a member for each seat, and then you know, then the mayor gets to a point one, so we've got 11. And the mission is this. I'm going to read it because I don't want to mess this up. And it says that the mission of the Public Safety Advisory Commission is to recommend resources, public safety practices and policies, and citizens' responsibilities needed to achieve a safe community to the mayor, Columbus Council, and our public safety departments. So you're one of 11 citizens on this. Any compensation? None. So why are you doing it? What's the, I mean, when did you start on it and why are you doing it? So I started at the end of last year and Walker Garrett, who serves District 8, is a good friend of mine and Walker approached me and asked me if I would. City councilman. Right. Okay. Um, Walker had asked me if I would serve and I said yes, absolutely. And at the time, the the commission was chaired by Tyson Begley, who was also and is still a friend of mine. So it was an easy way for me to, slide in now the why Columbus has given me a lot it's given my family a lot and as a kid one of the things that my mom taught me was where much is given much is expected and I felt like it was my time and I had the capacity to give back and I felt like this was a a, a good way to do it okay what in the last 10 12 months what have you learned about crime in Columbus that you didn't know as an average citizen? I mean, I, you, you mean, I would assume you live either in Midtown, North Columbus. Uh, you, what have you learned about crime? It exists. It's here. And the numbers fluctuate. I mean, as you started out the show, we were already ahead of, the, of last year's murder count. And that, to me, was very much a surprise. Um, coming in and I've, you know, the, the chief of police has been unbelievably transparent and provided uh, me and the commission with, with all kinds of information to, to track these stats, but it's here. And so now the, the challenge is to find ways to help our public safety departments do what they need to do to go out there and fight it and combat it. 
when you say crime is here, I mean, it's been here, but kind of break down what you're saying there, David. So you, we have, I mean, this is this is something that the... Go to your notes if so, you have to. Well, yeah. this, this is what the chief provided You're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I, I always have notes. Uh, you know, we have, you know, you can, the, what the CPD, do, CPD does is track total numbers every year. So yeah. I've got, I'm looking at the murder for 18, 19, and 20. And it's been rising in 18. Give me it, the numbers in that, yeah. So in 18, there were 30 murders. 19, there were 38. 20, there were 42. And now we're into 2021 and we're at 54, I think. We're in that area. So it's, you have that trend. Then you have other more serious crimes like rape, robbery, aggravated assault, burglary, which... The seven deadlies, burglary not being one of them, but... Right. So you have then the larcenies and then the theft by taking in the... I I think, if I'm reading this right, is about motor vehicles. So it's... Those numbers have either remained constant or seen a slight decrease with time. But the murder is where you're starting to see this uptick and a little bit of growth... I would be curious to see what the, the numbers from 2010 to 2017 are just to really kind of track a, a, a full life cycle of that, if you will. When you, I mean, homicides are, I mean, much of the, many of the homicides have been gun related. Uh, the deaths have been with the use of firearms, whether they be handguns or long guns, but mostly handguns. Um, what, are you learning about trends within the homicides? Where the guns are coming from. You know, it's, folks are finding new ways to get firearms. And one of those ways is taking them out of cars. And that happens. And it happens everywhere. People leave firearms in their cars at night and don't lock their vehicles. And instead of the smash and grab, folks are smartening up. They're going and checking to see if your car door is open. And if it's open, they're going to go in it. And if it's not open, they're going to move on to the next one. And, you know, I know there was a firearm stolen out of a vehicle in my neighborhood um, downtown very recently. I mean, and I've heard both Chief Blackman and Chief Ray Smith over in Phoenix City just basically screaming, hey, people are taking lots of guns out of lots of cars. I mean, that's a preventable crime because – on, on the end of the victim, and I mean, not putting blame on victim, but somebody's going in their car at 2 in the morning and stealing their dang gun. But if that victim had locked that car door, it's less likely that that gun would have been stolen, right? Right. Well, it's, to me, it's an accountability problem. If you leave a loaded firearm in your vehicle, I, I just, I, I don't do that. I own firearms. I'm not leaving firearms in my vehicles for a variety of reasons, one of which is I've got two very small children at home, yeah. but I don't want them getting out of the back and getting in the car and finding my gun. And, but there are people who carry who I mean the and a lot of these people have the concealed carry permit. I mean these are legal guns being carried by citizens for protection, and the one thing they're not doing is locking their car at night. So I think this goes back to a, a lesson that one of one of my mentors in the law profession talked about he it talked about the two by four method and these folks might not this might not be in the forefront of their mind but I guarantee you when they wake up one morning and their firearm has been stolen they're never going to leave it in their car 
again, and they get hit upside the head with a two-by-four and learn that lesson the hard way. But because that crime occurred, there now may be a Glock or a Smith & Wesson or something on the street that wouldn't have been there otherwise, right? Right. And a lot of times you will see during trials, very rarely comes out, and it does come out in recorder's court some, the, uh, the crime was perpetrated with a stolen weapon. You will hear police officers say that in the thing. So, I mean, the taking of, of a gun from a car leads to more crimes, potentially more serious, right? Potentially. I mean, you're putting a deadly weapon in somebody's hand, and, and if used in a, in a way that could certainly end somebody's life. And people that are stealing those weapons out of cars are doing a couple of things with them. They're using them for their own purposes, or they're selling them, right? I don't know. So that's that's part of the the next step in my analysis is I try to figure out what where what are where are the guns going? What are they being used for? I can't make generalizations about well they're being resold, they're used for personal purposes, they're being used to perpetrate crime. I, that's information that I'm trying to go out there and get and trying to figure out for my own knowledge and to help me in my role as the, the, the chairperson of the Public Safety Advisory Commission. So what do you do as a citizen? And, you know, obviously you're getting this information from police and from the chief, and they're facilitating the commission's ability to gain this information. What can you, and I know there was a lot of issues about the authority that this commission would have, when it was established years ago. What can you do with that information, David? Become a student. <clears throat> Arm myself with information. I mean, this is the, the interesting part about me stepping into this role is that I don't have a background in public safety at all. Like I told you in the beginning, I'm a philosophy major. So what I get to do with this information is to really study it and find ways that, as a commission, we can use that to make recommendations to Chief Blackman, and to the Columbus Police Department. So it's finding ways to better the community based on what we're being given, which is really the, the intent of the commission to begin with. I mean, if you're talking about something as simple as people leaving loaded weapons in unlocked cars overnight, why not start a public service ad campaign? We've talked about that, and that's something that one of the, one of the great things that we've been able to do this year is set up quarterly meetings to meet with uh, – Chief Blackman, and Mayor Henderson. And that's one of the things that we talked about. And that's one of the things that I brought to your general manager here at the station was, are there ways that we can partner with your news station or other news outlets to put out PSAs to tell people, look, this happens. Don't do it. You're contributing. Mean, unknowingly, you're contributing to the problem. I don't know that I'm, that I'm going to go that far, but I think the message is don't leave loaded firearms in your car. Lock your car at night because if you don't, someone's going to come take that gun and we don't know what it's going to be used for. And we can assume maybe that it would be used for some kind of criminal act. You know, I, I saw a video and it was out of an apartment complex in Phoenix City. And it was one of the, it was off of a ring camera vi video. And it was a group went into an apartment.
apartment complex, and it was a one-way-in, one-way-out apartment complex. Um, so they went in, and they worked every single car. Boom, boom, boom. It was six of them, maybe seven, and there was a getaway vehicle and another vehicle. It was really interesting. It was orchestrated, and I mean, when and, I, and I'm saying that to ask you this. When people think of these snatch-and-grab guys, these guys that are going in theft by taking, I think is the official charge, you said, uh, this is organized. This is not just some dude walking down the street checking every car door. This is, this is an organized criminal operation, right? I'd like to know that. I'd like to know. You can. I think it's – that's what I think. That's what I assume, but I, I don't have any – Hard evidence to back that up. I mean, well, and it, I've it, seen it, video that does back it up, and yeah. and I've been told by police, at least on the Phoenix City side, that you know, and I would assume those guys are running both sides of the river. That that river does not stop criminal activity. I no. think we've all figured that out. Um, so as you work through this, as you work through this commission, what's your goal as the chairperson or chairman of this commission? To me, it's about educating the public about what's going on in our public safety uh, departments and finding ways to facilitate communication between law enforcement and the citizens of our wonderful community. One thing you notice when you look at public safety right now, David, is particularly the Columbus Police Department, but the Sheriff's Office too, incredibly understaffed. Um, I mean, I think it's 100 officers down the last number I saw CPD. I know there's tremendous staffing issues with the sheriff's office in the jail, correctional officers. Have y'all made recommendations to them on ways to perhaps get more people in these jobs and, you know, fill these jobs that are sitting there vacant right now? It's something that we're discussing, and one of the one of the big things that is underway is a, a pay study to address pay compression that exists. So, for you know, I think the easiest way to look at pay compression is that there's little difference in pay between folks employed in a particular company or department based on education, training, and experience. So there's not too big of a gap between somebody who's entry level and someone who might have been there ten or fifteen years. And part of the reason for that is the entry-level salary is higher than it was when that person came in and was getting their 2 or 3 or 4% raises. So now there's a higher entry level, and that's part of the compression that, that in theory, penalizes people that have 10, 12, 15 years experience. I don't know if it penalizes people. I think you know what happens with pay compression is my understanding of it, and based on what I've looked at, is that it's something that happens slowly over time. And – one of the things that you can do to correct that is to come up with a pay study. And in the last quarterly meeting that I had with the chief and the mayor, I asked them that. I said, well, what, what's going, you know, is there any way that we can do a pay study? And, and Mayor Henderson was and smiled when he said it. He said that uh, $350,000 has been earmarked to do just that. And yeah. so part of what I'm, what I'm here and what I want our commission to do is to make sure that that actually happens, that that money gets used for that purpose so we can alleviate part of this problem. And I know pay compression mm -hmm. studies have been done by Columbus Consolidated Government many times. I mean, it, this is not a problem that showed up on October the 5th, 2021. This problem's been around for decades. And, you know, and I don't know how you fix it, but, I mean, and I'm not sure it's solely responsible for the shortage of police officers and public safety officials. 
Um, you know, one of the other things that we're doing too that we've talked about as a commission is finding a way to, to talk with members of our law enforcement community and understand how they feel about their jobs. So another one of the ideas that has been kicked around and was um, first brought up by Byron Hickey, who's one of our um, commission members, was to find a way to do an anonymous survey to gauge morale <coughs> within the department. And so that was another idea that I brought up to the, the chief and the mayor. And uh, Chief Blackman said, we've done a SWOT analysis, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis. And, and he was kind enough to share that with me. And what so, did it show? I'll tell you what it showed. Um, yeah, I'm very curious about that. I'd love to see that document as well. Let me ask the chief if I can share it with you, okay. but, I'll, but I'll share the, the, the number one strength. And to me, this is what, where I think us as a commission can really help. The number one strength that was identified by the study was training. So we're a well-trained department. We are a well-trained department. And, and that's something that I want our citizens to really know. It's, not that we're just not well-trained, we're accredited. So this is another part of the piece that that I don't know many folks know about. So there's this uh, group called the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. And we have the CPD has been accredited for a very long time. And if you look at however many thousands of law enforcement agencies that exist in the United States, my understanding is not that not everybody is accredited by this group. And to get accredited, you actually have to go through and satisfy this group's standards, and it, they're heightened standards, and I printed them out. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. As I sat through and I studied this, all of the different standards that they have to comply with to be certified and maintain that certification, that's something that they're doing, and that's something that the community should know. And that's part of the, I think, the strength of the training, pro, uh, the tra uh, training program. And that's something that I approached you about with the shoot, don't shoot. Yeah. And we're trying to set that up, and I think we will be able to. So, strengths. Okay, what's the other part of the SWOT analysis? Weakness. The number one weakness that was identified was pay compression. So pay. Right. Pay. I mean, if they have to just take compression out of it, it's pay. It's 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 pay for people who've been there a while. Uh, I mean, it, the document it said pay compression. I would. I I, I think it's. I think mm -hmm. it's just. What we've been talking okay. about that there is that you do have that there's a not a big disparity between some of the entry level folks and maybe for some of the folks that have been there ten years. I haven't seen the numbers in the salary, yeah. so I don't know exactly okay. how big of a problem it is, but it's something that has been identified. Were there any other weaknesses outlined? There were, and I I, I can pull the, the the document, but it to me this is the the opportunity that we have to provide insight and support and suggestion is is here. How can we highlight all the wonderful things that CPD is doing already and bring that to the forefront of our community's minds. How can we talk about some of the use of force training that our officers go through? How can we talk about the simulation training that I had the privilege of going through and what, what you're ultimately going to do? You know, one of the other things that they're going to allow us to do is the uh, Citizens Law Enforcement Academy. And that's something that I hope every member of our commission ultimately goes through to kind of be, have a better insight into what it's like to be a law enforcement Say a little bit about the academy. I know something about it, but I'd just I'd like to hear you explain it. I mean, my understanding of the academy is that citizens, normal walking around, everyday folks, can go in there and actually receive law enforcement training. I think it's just that, a citizen's law enforcement 
Academy. And it gives you a better understanding of what yeah. Columbus PD and others do. Anything else out of that survey you want to share, David? No, I mean, I, I think the I, – I really think that this is a tool that I want to use to build up and lift up our law enforcement community and our public safety community to find ways to really show and highlight here are our strengths. We've identified this weakness of pay compression. We know that there's been money earmarked through city council's budget to address it. And of course, there are other strengths that we can talk about. There are, are other weaknesses that we can talk about. But I think what this does is this, it's a roadmap. It's a roadmap for our commission to go in and find ways to help with our law enforcement agencies. How do you get appointed to the commission? It's a council appointment, right? It is. And like Walker was your appointment. And all so there's 11 members. So all 10 counselors plus the mayor get an appointment, right? Is right. That, is that how it would be? Right. Um, is it... Is that commission representative of our community? I think it is. What I really like about the Public Safety Advisory Commission is that we have folks who do not have any law enforcement training like me, none. And then we have, I think, four members who are retired law enforcement officers. Byron Hickey being one. Right. Stan Sweeney, Scott uh, Taft, and Belvin Milner. Okay. So we have people with decades and decades of combined experience who bring those experiences in their life stories to the table to help guide the rest of us as we kind of plow through these issues. I don't know the other two, but I know Stan. Stan used to run the 911 center and a lot of the administrative stuff. And so I dealt with Stan on a lot of public records and, you know, just general police department release of information. Um, The commission, are you glad you've done it? I mean, are Absolutely. you glad? Absolutely. I hate to cut you off in the middle of a question, but yes, yeah. unequivocally, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to do it. Well, I'm, I get cut off in the middle of a question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, speaking of crime, I'm currently covering the alleged criminal activity of our district attorney who was suspended yesterday by Governor Brian Kemp. And, I mean, that's a whole nother part of this to me. I mean, uh, District Attorney Mark Jones has currently been suspended from his job as district attorney for nine alleged counts of misconduct while in office indictment. Mark is innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. I mean, just as everybody is. But, you know, that is something that – from a crime standpoint, we've never dealt with a DA who is under an indictment and facing, you know, felony prosecution. I mean, that that that's a different level for this community to deal with when it comes to crime. Because that's, the DA is this, in my 20, 30 plus years of covering, you know, the DA, I have come to the conclusion, is probably the most important position in the city. The guy... The person in that job, it's an incredibly important job in prosecuting crime, moving cases along, figuring out which ones are the most serious. You know, it, it the way that job is done relates to the capacity of the jail, confidence in public safety. You know, I mean, what does it say that our DA is under indictment and is facing a criminal misconduct trial? It's hard. <clears throat> it's hard. It, it, I thought long and hard about this because I, I figured you were going to ask. And my response is this. 
I think what we have is an opportunity to rally. We can rally around whoever is going to step in and take the helm while Mark figures this stuff out. Um, what does it say about our community? I don't think it says anything. I don't think the voters did anything wrong. The voters went out there and exercised their right and elected Mark to do a job. I hate that Mark is in the middle of this. I, I hate it for him personally. I hate it for his family. Um, but like you said at the beginning, Mark's innocent until he's proven guilty. So I think for the time being, there's going to be a, a spot to fill, and I hope that whoever steps up and does it comes in there and is ready to roll their sleeves and get to work. Because there, I mean, COVID has already caused a backlog. Now you have the potential of that backlog being exasperated by the DA's criminal allegations against him. I don't I mean, know if it's. It, I don't know if the problem is exacerbated by not having about the. Uh, about the allegations against them, it's we don't have a leader. And we need someone to lead that arm of our city government and our community. Because it's not just Columbus that he serves. It's the Chattahoochee Judicial Circuit. Six counties. And so that's what we need right now is a leader who is going to step up to the plate and roll up their sleeves and bring this home. Yeah, and right now it would be an interim leader because Mark has been suspended. He has not been removed from office. Right. He is continuing to get paid, and he will continue to be the DA, just the suspended DA, until there is a resolution of his criminal trial. And all that's being done outside of Columbus. I mean, if you look, the Attorney General's office brought brought the case. It was a GBI investigation. So this is very different from the donut stuff that – that was Columbus PD. Um, so, but I think I think you, to your point, you're right. There's there needs to be a leader that kind of steps up and at least keeps the office moving. But one of the problems is, I mean, you're a lawyer. That's the second largest law firm in the city. Twenty nine lawyers yeah. in the DA's office. It's only one law firm in Columbus that has more. That's a I mean, that's an administrative task, if nothing else, with thousands of cases and 29 lawyers. I mean, that's a responsibility in itself, right? Yeah, it is, but it's a tremendous responsibility, and it's one that someone should be able to come in and take and do with a great sense of pride. Yeah. To serve our community in that capacity would be an honor for whoever gets to do it. But and I can you, see the challenges. Oh, man. I can definitely see the challenges of walking into that. The challenges are mount are mountain like, but it's not. They're not insurmountable. We've had. They're not insurmountable. That's the, the way that I look at life. There's, it, there might be a problem, but you're going to find a way to get through it. And the only way out is through. Is that the philosopher? In you? It is. Well, sometimes I get to sit around and have deep thoughts by David, and um, you know, because I'm the opposite of a philosopher. I'm a, rea I mean. Forty years in journalism has taught me to analyze, process, and react, or sometimes just react, and then you analyze and process after you, <laughs> after you're on the scene of something. But you know, I don't look at things philosophically very often, and you know, and that's you know, but crime, there is a philosophical 
there is a philosophical angle to our crime problem. I mean, is it lack of education? Is it lack of opportunity? Is it poverty? What are the what are the root causes of crime in Columbus? I wish I knew the answer to that. I really do. And I don't I don't know that that I have a good answer for it. And I don't want to spout off something that's totally off the cuff. I mean, I, I think there are many reasons for it. And I would hope that those are some of the things that the mayor's office is looking at and the chief is looking at and our community is looking at as a whole. I mean, pretty clearly poverty is a, is a, is, is a root cause of some of it. Would you agree with that? I would think to some degree. And then educational, uh, lack of education. See, I, again, I don't and, know. And I, I don't mean, know how to get there either. And I'm not trying to put you on the no, spot. No, sure. I think part of the way is getting out there and finding ways to engage with the community. And this is something that we've talked about internally on the commission is how can we bring, and this is something that the SWOT analysis also talked about, is finding ways to get CPD and other public safety officers out into the community to build that trust, to build that rapport, to help educate people about what is going on internally and two to listen as important as it is for the for our law enforcement officers to go out there and help educate the public about what they do on a day in day out basis it's just as important or if not more important for them to stop and listen and so part of what we've talked about or what are the ways that we can do that whether it's having cpd go out and do a road show where they go out into the community and they talk about different facets of their training or whatever else that they're doing at the time, whether it's going out and having public safety town halls where we have members of law enforcement, our commission, and we sit there and do nothing but listen to members of our community, talk to us about what they think is important, and listen to their suggestions. One of the other things I think I'm most excited about is getting law enforcement officers involved with our children. You know, so I got a, my, my son is in Little, Little League, and so the, the, I thought it would be fun, and I think we're going to do it, would be to get the chief to go out and throw the honorary first pitch at the kickoff of the spring season next year. What you're talking about essentially is community policing. In a sense. It's having officers engaged with people before they're putting handcuffs on them. To me, it's about going out there and building that trust. Because it, the way that I look at it, and, I, and it's when you take, I think education is always key. When you educate people, you give them the tools, then they're more informed. And then at that point, they're becoming engaged more in the process in a meaningful way. And by getting out there and getting them involved, you begin to trust them again. You begin to look at law enforcement officers as heroes. Like, what, you know, we live in a military town. Absolutely. You know, and, and so what do we do when we see our men and women in uniform? We go up to them and say, thank you for your service. And I want to see that happen more and more with our law enforcement officers. And if you can get the kids involved early and get them to see what I see, is that we have a, a, a wonderful law enforcement community. Maybe that helps in some way. Interesting. When you see... Be careful how I ask this. Um, we are a military community in every aspect of it, and that perma that just kind of flows through the rest of everything we are. 
But if you look at the crime standpoint, and this is anecdotal, but it's through conversations with cops, with lawyers, with criminals, with people that have been arrested, people that are involved. Um, the root cause, gangs seem to be a priority. Over 50% of the people in the Muskogee County Jail are known gang members according to the to the um, the census and, and the information they tracked. Many of the crimes, particularly the retaliatory ones, have a gang component to it. Um, and, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the gang part of our crime problem? That's something that I continue to study. And I don't, I, frankly, I don't have an answer for that. It's, I think... Part of what I've seen the, the chief do, and what I what I think the sheriff is doing, is going out there and having conversations with the gang leaders. They are. There's no question that Sheriff Countryman and Chief Flatman are trying to get <clears throat> into the gang community in a way that they better understand it. I think that's that's clear as punch. I mean, and you know they've talked about it a couple of news conferences, but you know. Uh, was several months ago. I mean, the murder rate continues to move north. Um, you know, I just, I mean, you know, some of the federal possibilities of federal crimes involved, particularly with firearms and repeat offenders, you know, because one of the differences, as you will know, in Superior Court, you're going to get a sentence, and it may be 30 years. You may only serve 12, 10 of those 30 years before you're out on probation. You walk into the federal system and you get a sentence 30 years, you're going to be in the federal prison for 30 years because there's no probation. You're going to serve whatever Judge Land sentences you to. Do you think that is a potential deterrent, is taking more of these local cases, particularly repeat offenders, firearm cases, those things, and putting them in the federal system where it's a far different game? I, I I think the any time that you when the when the stakes are a little bit higher, that could potentially serve as a deterrent for others. Um, there's a, certainly a difference between one year in jail and twelve or thirty. Um, not practicing in the area of criminal law again. I mean, this is this is one of the things why I, I continue to be a student in this area because I don't have the background, but it's unbelievably fascinating why I continue to do it and continue to, to try to find answers to these questions because this is stuff that I think about. And I just, at this point, you know, I'm barely a year in and I, there's no way I'm going to have the answers, but I'm tr trying to figure it out. Um, we talked about the crime stuff and I don't think any of us have the answers. I think, you know, I mean, I don't think the chief or the mayor or the sheriff have the answers right now. If they do, they certainly would have rolled them out. And, you know, and, is your little chart shows, I mean, the last four years, we're clearly climbing, you know, 15, 20% in homicides every year. I mean, there's, there's got to be a way to reverse this trend. And, you know, that, and I think being on the Public Safety Commission, Public Safety Advisory Commission, you're kind of at the forefront of trying to bring at least normal citizen ideas to it. Um, Let's talk a little bit. Let's go back to stuff. I mean, you, you've adopted Columbus. You live here. When you look at your, I mean, 
uh, you're a little, your office is right here. I mean, what do you do? I mean, I've, I see you sometimes walking into work with your dog. I mean, you know, you got a little different kind of law practice. I wish I could bring my dogs to work, but you know, working in try as a trial lawyer, you know, you work through a lot of solo stuff till it gets really intense, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it's the way that the that I work is we have folks who get in car wrecks and they're getting medical treatment they need, and we have cases that are at different stages of the game. So I might have X number of clients who are still getting medical treatment for the injuries that they need, yeah. and then I might have X number of clients who we've had to file a lawsuit. Um, and so everything's kind of staged out along the way. But I do get to bring my dog to work every day. I have a 12-year-old lab boinkin spaniel mix named Otis who has been my office dog for the two years that we've owned that building. Is Otis deaf or blind? Neither. He's just old and sweet. <laughs> He's a great dog. Um, you you kind of got a little bit of a music studio in there too, so you've got, you got a good setup over there. I do. My wife uh, Chandler decided that it was time that my amps and my guitars go elsewhere, so I've been able to set set up shop. And one of the great things that our law firm does, our, so our law firm, we take a little bit more of a we, uh, a different approach. We don't advertise. We don't. You don't see us on billboards. You're not going to see us on buses or radio. Um, but we do some social media marketing. So one of the things that they've that we've come up with is this thing called Rose Riffs, where once a month, and I haven't done it for a while, my partner's getting mad at me, is um, I do a monthly video of me playing my favorite guitar riffs, and I get to tell a story about the song, talk about my personal injury practice, and it's been kind of a, it's been a really fun way for me to... It's soft marketing. Yes. Very soft. Well, we've hit a point in the show that I've done with all but one guest, I've Forgot to do it with Lieutenant Governor a couple weeks ago. Uh, called Turn the Tables. You get to ask me a question, which could be dangerous. When come, lawyers, are the, <laughs> lawyers are the last guys. Did you kill Kennedy? Uh, no, I mean, but you get to ask me a question. We've been talking about crime. We've been talking about Columbus and your adopted hometown. If you could ask, you know, and so I'm like you. This is an adopted hometown for me as well. What's your question? What do you see as the biggest issue impacting public safety for our community? Well, it's two-part. That's part okay. one. Um, I've been following it for a lot of years. I think pay compression, I think pay is part of it. But I think another part of it is the ability to recruit and retain quality law enforcement folks because we've all seen it they'll get somebody in here for two three years they may go into the after three years on the street in columbus they've starting to build this institutional knowledge and they're starting to build the skill set and the ability to do the protocols and the train and follow the training some of them go in the federal system some of them go to larger cities that pay more so recruit and retain it's been a it's been a long-standing problem and i think it continues to be one the other question is this, and I want to—it sounds like we're getting close to wrapping up, so I'd yeah. like to always like to end on a good note. Okay. Um, I think if I'm right, the slogan for our city is "We do amazing." It is. I did not come up with it for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want that. Um, in your in your list, you've been how long? You've been here thirty years. 
Yes. And this is the second slogan. The other is what progress has preserved. That like was the first big one. I like we do amazing. Okay. I think we do a lot of things in this town that are amazing. And that's my question to you. If you could look at, give me the top two things for you that makes Columbus amazing. I think you hit on it when you talked about what you know. There's an incredible sense of place here. We have a sense of place. Um, and that place includes some of the wealthiest people in our country and some of the poorest. I mean, I've stood in line at the Piggly Wiggly and I've seen a billionaire, you know, buying something with, a, with somebody right behind them in line that had ham hocks that lives in public housing. We are not, we are segregated in a lot of ways. I mean, and, and don't come back at me and say we're not, I mean, we're segregated. But I think we are in closer proximity to the haves and the have-nots than many communities our size. I think they use, we use a lot of the same stuff, stores, um, you know, facilities. I mean, Lake Bottom Park is probably the most columbus place there is because you see everything in our community at lake bottom park from the homeless to people coming out of million dollar homes near the park i mean it's all there um the other part of us is you know and i think we're just now starting to see the benefits of it nine eight nine years into it the urban whitewater course is something that any city in America would take. It is, it brings visitors, it brings people to the Chattahoochee. And, you know, somebody said, yeah, y'all got a man-made. It's, no, it's man-made, but it's in a natural environment. You know, it's engineered more than made. It's man-engineered. And I think, to me, the the Whitewater course, and I've been through it all the way through, is is amazing. You fallen out yet? Uh, I did it. I've been in down it three times. Uh, I did, went down cut bait one time, and I thought me and Jesus were about to see <laughs> each other. Um, you know, it's you know, when you're underwater, even if you're only underwater for four or five seconds, it feels like an eternity yes, because it does. because that. You know, particularly rushing water like that. It's uh, I'm 61. I don't do that anymore, but I will go down there and watch. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's an interesting question, and and I like the turn the tables aspect of this because it makes me think too. Because you know, good podcast is two ways sometimes. So our guest has been David Rowetter. He is the chairman of the Public Safety Advisory Commission. They report to, to the mayor and city council's 11-member commission, as you just heard him talk about, and a lot of what they do is kind of gather information and facts and try to figure out how to make recommendations to our city public safety leaders. And it's important work. It's volunteer work. It's community work at its very, very essence. We're at the point now where you can, where I'm supposed to tell you, Dylan Hanson, our capable director here. Dylan has done every one of these episodes, and he is the Chuck Williams Show guru. Um, it, you can watch the Chuck Williams Show 
on WRBL.com Tuesday nights between 7 and 8 o'clock. You can also catch it on podcasts. We are on most of your podcast form, formats, Spotify, Apple, and iHeart, and you can get it on the go there. I think I've, I'm hearing more and more people that are listening to the show in the traditional podcast form and not watching the video. So I'm really pleased with that, and I'm glad that's starting to take hold. Social media, I mean, is Facebook still operating? I think it's back up. Yeah, okay. it, it, is, it is. It is. Okay, I, I just wanted to make sure that we hadn't killed. That we at had. the time of this, because uh, we're pre-recording. So any anyone we're recording this on the fifth. So it's like Facebook's been down and Instagram. I think for like twenty four hours before this. Yeah. So you know, they knew we were coming. <laughs> so oh, they did. <laughs> so you on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Chuck Williams. On Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL. And on Instagram, if it's operating, Chuck Williams 0999. We want to thank David for being here. David Rowetter, Chairman of the Public Safety Advisory Commission. Thank Dylan for running another great show. You've been listening to the Chuck Williams Show. And this really isn't about Chuck Williams. It's about the guests we talk to and trying to get information that will just make you a little better informed. Hope to have you back next week for another edition of Chuck Wheat Show.